Welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. You can also read it and all the material we'll be discussing today on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I'm joined with, joined by, rather, Steve Harper. Hey, Ben. And Sarah Eyring. Hi. Thank you both for being with us today. So our topic today is actually chapter two of Saints. The, the title of the chapter is Hear Him. What is this chapter all about? This chapter tells the story, the greatest story of the restoration of Joseph Smith going into the woods near his parents' home in western New York and praying aloud for the first time in his life wow. and receiving as an answer what I call the best documented vision of God in history. The best documented. Okay, and a lot of us know the documentation that shows up in the Pearl of Great Price, and we get plenty of detail there, enough to to really sustain us and a testimony. But in this chapter, it seems like we get more than one account. Yeah, this chapter is based on the wealth uh, and the depth of the historical record, which contains several accounts. Uh, Four of them come to us from Joseph directly or his scribes. And then during his lifetime, there are are at least five other people that he told about it who wrote about it uh, while he was alive. So, uh, you know, it's uh, wonderful to have that much evidence to write this history from, and we used every bit of it, and uh, it's a very exciting thing. So those are nine accounts total? Yeah, and different people count them different ways. So there are nine, you could say. Some people will say there are ten or five from Joseph. It all just depends on what they're counting as an account. Sometimes, uh, for example, on the 14th of November, 1835, there's an entry in Joseph Smith's journal that says he told a fellow named Erastus Holmes about the vision, but it doesn't describe the vision. So some people might count that as an account or some might not. So sure. if you hear different numbers, it's just uh, based because people are uh, giving different criteria for what they count as an account. But they're a lot, and they're let's wonderful. Let's let our uh, let's let our listeners hear just a quick excerpt from the book that uses these various accounts, and I think we have a couple of other questions for you, Steve. Exerting all his strength, Joseph called once more to God. His tongue loosened, and he pleaded for deliverance. But he found himself sinking into despair, overwhelmed by the unbearable darkness, and ready to abandon himself to destruction. At that moment a pillar of light appeared over his head. It descended slowly and seemed to set the woods on fire. As the light rested on him, Joseph felt the unseen power release its hold. The Spirit of God took its place, filling him with peace and unspeakable joy. Peering into the light, Joseph saw God the Father standing above him in the air. His face was brighter and more glorious than anything Joseph had ever seen. God called him by name and pointed to another being who appeared beside him. This is my beloved son, he said. Hear him. So, Steve, um, the word fire was used. Why, why did you guys, you, the, those of you who are writing this, why did you use the word fire? Oh, that's a great question. Fire is the word that uh, Joseph used uh, in his 1832 account, the earliest one we have. 
And in a later account published in his lifetime, the first account ever published uh, abroad was Orson Pratt's. He published it in Scotland for his missionary work there. And he goes into quite a bit of detail about this fire, this pillar of fire that descends from heaven. So it's richly um, uh, discussed in the historical record, and we thought it was a perfect word to describe what, what Joseph experienced. I love the little details like that, that or, or words that might not be in the most known account. And one of those details for me was that um, the Lord's, the Savior's face was just as bright and glorious as God's face. And that was a fun little bit of information from Joseph's perspective that I hadn't known about, but that, you know, kind of impacts the way that I think of Heavenly Father and the Savior. I, I love that there are those little bits of information. Why aren't these other accounts as widely published or known about? That's a great question. Um, I would like to do everything I can to make sure they are widely published and known about, and they really have been pretty widely published uh, beginning in the 1960s. Well, let me go back even further. The one you just referenced is what we call the Wentworth Letter, Mm -hmm. a letter Joseph Smith wrote to a Chicago newspaper editor in 1842, published in the church's newspaper that year, uh, The Times and Seasons. So, so that wonderful detail about the father and son exactly resembling each other in likeness and appearance, it comes from that. But, you know, who reads uh, the 1842 church news, right? <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> That's not common for us to do. Uh, some nerdy historians do that kind of thing, but Latter-day Saints in general don't. And so it's through publications like Saints that those details that have long been there but have sort of laid dormant on the shelves of the library are going to become widely known to the Latter-day Saints, and they're going to share the delight that you feel when they learn those things. What do you say to someone who may have been approached by a, a friend who had a question or even someone who's been critical that says there's multiple accounts of the first vision and, and some of the details are different and maybe they're bothered by that. How, what, what's your response? I want to uh, invite the person to read the accounts, to have all of them, to study them. That's what I've done. I mean, that happened to me. Uh, it wasn't a, uh, a critic. When critics uh, give you that message, they do so and they imply that there's, there's something wrong with that, right? Can you imagine somebody saying, did you know there are four Gospels in the New Testament and they have different details? Uh, It's like it's sinister and scary, right? right? Well, this is no different. I mean, I was introduced to them by Milton Bachman, my my church history professor, and he wrote the book, literally wrote the book on them, right? as well as some of the key articles. Um, And so when you're introduced to them by somebody who's not afraid of them and who knows them well and who shows them to you, then you don't have that experience of being uh, knocked off your spiritual feet. And I, won't, I would like to do that for everybody in the whole world. That's one of the things this chapter does is say, hey, here's the uh, story as you get it from all the accounts. And if you want to, click on through and read them for your very self. So the, the readers, uh, our listeners, there's a topic yep. that is linked to from this chapter that topic has references to all the published accounts, all the known accounts. Right, references to them, descriptions of them, and then the accounts themselves are right there. And you can read them in the original handwriting on, on digital images that are actually better resolution than if you just looked at it with your, the real record with your eyes. Right. And, they've been, and those have even been translated um, into multiple languages as part of the gospel topic essay on this, on this very same subject. Right. 
there's nothing to be scared of here. They do have different details in them, just exactly like the four Gospels in the New Testament do. This isn't, a, this isn't something to worry about. This is something to rejoice in. This is the best documented vision of God anywhere in the historical record. That is good news. Right. And there are some discrepancies. You know, one account says uh, Joseph had the vision in the 16th year of my age. And that doesn't square with the other ones that say it's 15th year or about 14 years old. There's reasons why that, uh, that anomaly is, is an anomaly. It's written, for example, in the handwriting of Frederick Williams, and it's written above the line. It was clearly an, an insertion after the fact. There are all kinds of reasons why that uh, possible error or anomaly is, is there, and it's not, nothing to be afraid of or scared about. And so that goes, that's the same, same thing is true for the other things that seem like they might be discrepancies or contradictions. I've studied these records, I think, as much as anybody, and I don't find them to be contradictory or have uh, major problems that can't be reconciled by understanding what Joseph was doing when he told the story or how it was recorded or remembered. What, what about who is he talking to? Does that make a difference? Oh, absolutely makes a difference. Just like, just like I'm talking to Sarah and yourself here today, it makes a difference in what I'm going to say. If I were speaking at a professional conference today, I'd, I'd try to use bigger words and impress the people and <laughs> make sure they didn't know how little I knew. <laughs> or if I was talking to my ch children, I might use different words uh, or say it in a different way or try to capture their attention. And uh, I might forget some things. I might um, make some errors along the way. The earliest account, the one that has that insertion, says in the 16th year of my age, I'm pretty confident Joseph felt about that account the way I feel about a, an early draft of something I write and then I'm not happy with. He, he desperately wants to get the story out. He's been commanded to get the story recorded, but he also feels this terrible dilemma, right? He, he's seen something that defies all description. To be in the presence of the Father and the Son is inexpressible. And so right after that account, in the same book, is a letter to a friend of Joseph's in which he prays. Joseph says, O Lord, deliver me from the narrow prison of paper, pen, and ink, and a crooked, broken, scattered, and imperfect language. So he knows he has to tell this spectacular story true story of what happened to him, and he does not have the tools to do it. And so I think some of the accounts are, are best explained by his effort to do the best he can and then him feeling unsatisfied with the result. Joseph tells this story, and um, it's, it's not all sunshine and roses for, for young Joseph. So this from, from Saints, uh, chapter 2. His testimony bothered some people enough to ridicule him. How strange, he thought, that a simple boy of no consequence in the world could attract so much bitterness and scorn. Why persecute me for telling the truth, he wanted to ask. Why does the world think to make me deny what I have actually seen? What was it like for, for young Joseph? When he shares this experience, it's, it's not accepted by his friends and neighbors. Yeah, he didn't expect to be rebuffed by the minister or by others, and he was. And you know, well, I think one of the best things about saints is it tells the story as the 
people who are living it experienced it at the time. It does not tell the story of what 20-year-old Joseph Smith knew about the first vision. It tells the story as what 14-year-old Joseph knew about the vision. And it's so exciting to experience history as the participants experienced it and not have everything they knew looking backwards on the page. That was one of, that's one of the brilliant contributions of the creative writing team is they formulated this rule that unless there is an extremely rare and good reason to make an exception, we don't flash forward and we don't tell the story uh, looking backward. We don't tell what Joseph knew when he was 30 as, as what he knew when he was 14. And that makes the story very exciting. I'll tell you, when readers read the third chapter and the fourth chapter about what it was like to go and get the plates and learn about the Book of Mormon plates for Moroni and learn what it meant to become the translator of the Book of Mormon, they're going to experience that story in a way they've never had before because it's Joseph Smith looking forward instead of looking backward, and it makes a huge difference. It's very intense and dramatic. Very very different than us just having a, a copy of the Book of Mormon in our hands and then learning the story, right? Taking it all for granted as if it was a foregone conclusion. I think in writing it that way, too, it makes it, as opposed to writing it in the perspective of, you know, the eldest Joseph looking back on his experiences with lots of context, I think that makes it even a little more relatable for readers like me who feel just as naive, more naive, obviously, I guess, than 14-year-old Joseph. And it helps me to kind of put myself in his shoes a little bit and to, to feel close to him and even close to heaven when I think, okay, how would I respond in this experience? You know, how would I feel about having seen the Father and the Son? And then how would I feel about being rebuked? And to go with him in that journey not only tells me a lot about Joseph, but also gives me sort of a glimpse into myself and and even my testimony and my beliefs, which I think is so cool. I'm thrilled to hear you say that, Sarah. That is fantastic. I'm I'm excited that it's doing that kind of work in people's lives. Uh, You know, Joseph had to exercise faith in the promises made to him in, in what he knew or what he believed because he did not know exactly how the future was going to unfold for him. And it sounds like you're saying the same thing. Uh, oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> we believe, we hope things will work out well uh, based on the promises we've made with God and vice versa. But uh, it's a great act of faith on our part. And, and this history shows us that others who've come before us in the restoration have acted on faith and their faith has always been rewarded in the ultimate sense. It's interesting, too, that, of course, he was rebuffed, as you said, for sharing his testimony, and that has become even more challenging these days, I feel, to share your testimony of the Savior, and especially of this sort of account, because it does sound fantastical. And so it's it's a little bit daunting sometimes to think, well, it's my duty to to tell the truth and to tell what I know, but I'm grateful for his example of being really determined and really committed to Heavenly Father. That helps me too. So this has been a really empowering bit of reading for me. I love to hear you. I love to hear your responses to it and what it means to you. It means a lot to me. Thank you. There's a, I, I, I'm pretty sure this one is in the Pearl of Great Prize. You correct me if I'm wrong, but that phrase, I knew it and I knew that God knew it and I could not deny it. That is right. I've, I've, uh, I'm with you, Sarah. I've felt that so many times when I look back to that example of Joseph, and I have to say, I, 
I know that God knows that I know this. And so I'm going to move forward with faith. Um, you know, some readers might be um, interested, Ben, to know about how that line in particular, which is a favorite, a favorite of mine, and I think a lot of other people's, it was not originally in Saints. Where did it, where did, <laughs> how did it get in there? Well, as you might expect, the prophets and apostles and leaders of the church, general auxiliary leaders, um, are invited to read these, of course, and they have they, none of this is going to be published until the first presidency signs off on it. And we were invited in that review process to make sure that we uh, got those most critical lines into the book. And as a result, they're there now. So. so basically what you're saying is my favorite line might be the favorite line of one of the Quorum of the Twelve or the First Presidency. I don't know all the details, but I do know that they invited <laughs> us to make sure that the chapters bear witness. And there's no better way to bear witness, they advised us, than to let Joseph Smith bear his witness. Right. And so I'm thankful for that guidance and direction. I would be, I would be fearful of getting things wrong and, and maybe messing things up, except we're guided by prophets and they, they make sure that we get it right and, and uh, that it gets out in the way it needs to. Maybe we can go back for just one, one moment. Another one of the topics that is a part of this chapter talks about Christian churches in Joseph Smith's day. So just like Sarah was saying a moment ago, there, Joseph is in a culture just like we are. And it was a little surprising to me that in that culture that his, his vision or his experience um, wasn't more readily accepted can you tell us a little bit about what, what was religious life like in, in, uh, in the Manchester, Manchester. Palmyra area yeah. of uh, New York? Well, one word. It was contentious. So you have different soteriologies is the fancy word. Soteriology is theology that deals with salvation. Who gets saved? How do you get saved? Is there anything you can do about whether you're saved or not? These questions are intense in Joseph Smith's time and place. And there are various theologies competing with each other. And of course, he experiences this. Um, Joseph Smith understood these things a lot better than many of us do today. He understood what was at stake in the difference between Presbyterianism and Methodism, for example, or Quakerism or Episcopalianism. And uh, uh, he worried very much about which one of those theologies was right or true, or were they all wrong together? And it wasn't for him a matter, uh, uh, an intellectual matter alone. It was salvation at stake, right? He needed to know which doctrine of salvation was true so he could find the Savior and find redemption. And so he was very intensely interested. And there was also, besides being contentious, there was a great deal of change happening at this time. And one of the ways that's happening is that Methodism is going from being a, a young and robust movement that's gaining ground and gaining converts by the thousands and tens of thousands right. to becoming a mainstreamed and therefore more conservative denomination. So whereas re until recently, Methodist converts could say, I, I had a vision. I saw Christ in the woods or in my law office, as Charles Finney will say, at about the same time and place as Joseph. 
or I felt the spirit of the Lord overwhelm me and I feel born again. That was taken seriously by the Methodists right up until about this time. Joseph Smith expected that he's having a Methodist kind of conversion account and then he's rejected and it's difficult for him to figure out why. It's easier for us to see it in retrospect and understand what the Methodist minister doesn't like about what Joseph says than it was for him to see at the time. So 14-year-old Joseph is shocked that his vision, which is so wonderful to him, is such bad news to the the religious authorities. Do you think that people who are also looking for the truth, the same way that Joseph was looking, who may look at this account and think of it as just one of the options that they're looking into, um, do you think that they should take Joseph's word for it? Do you think that they should read the account and think, oh, I found my answer? Or do you think that this type of praying and asking God is something that they should apply to? Oh, this is a great question, Sarah. Uh, This is the message of the restoration in terms of, I'll use another fancy word, right? Epistemology. (laughs) So the the, the philosophy of knowing. How do we know? In In one sense, what you're asking is, how do we know? That's what Joseph was asking, right? And his answer was, if any of you lack wisdom, ask God. He will help you to know. And Joseph Smith did that successfully, and he documented that he did it successfully. And we are now invited to believe his testimony, but not just to take his word for it, to verify it for ourselves. Uh, President Oaks at a, a symposium held at the Library of Congress in 2005 to celebrate Joseph's Bicentennial, he called this the principle of independent verification by revelation. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Just another way of saying all of us can and should follow Joseph's example, seek and receive our own revelation to confirm the truth of his witness. I've done that, and that's how I know for myself. That's how I'm so confident. And what I say, if all I had was the historical records and what they say, I'd end up at the end of the day saying, well, I know what the records say, but I don't know for myself for sure if the records tell the truth. But I can say now, I know what the records say, and I know by the power of the Holy Ghost that the records tell me the truth. I love that. And I love, too, that in the account, it says that Joseph, in what you said was his first attempt to pray out loud, that all he did was ask, I think, one simple question, right? As far as we know, what the record says is he, he just asks the Lord. Really simple and basic, straightforward question. We sometimes might think we have to pray with great eloquence or great length. Sure. Our loving Heavenly Father just wants us to reach out to Him, and He will reach out to us. That is so cool. You know, in our, in our most recent uh, general conference, at the time of this recording anyway, was April 2018. And... As, as you were mentioning that, it, I, I just came to my mind what President Nelson said. Do you remember what he said? What was the most important thing that we learned the first because of the first vision? We talk about all the things, right? We know that God and Jesus are two independent beings. But what did President Nelson say? Do you guys remember? Revelation. He, he said the heavens are opened. That's the most important thing. That once again, we can know. We, we know that God is there and that, and that he can answer our prayers just like he did Joseph's. That message is consistent over time. Uh, when you look at Joseph Smith's records, looking for what, 
what the takeaway lesson was for him. It was that a man or a woman who lacks wisdom can ask of God and not be upbraided and be answered. He didn't seem to think at the time it was worth noting or make a big deal of the theological hair splitting. To him, the good news was if you lack wisdom, if you need desperately to know what your standing is before God, you can ask him and he will let you know. Thank you, Steve. And uh, thank you, Sarah, also for joining us today. Uh, to learn more about the Saints Project and the new history, uh, new narrative history of the church, you can always visit saints.lds.org. To subscribe to this podcast and others, visit the Mormon channel. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. And don't forget to read more of this historical narrative on lds.org or on your Gospel Library app. Join us again for our next episode, where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days. See you next time. Thank you.